Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled yesterday that colleges and universities cannot consider race when admitting students. It's a decision that legal experts say will have wide-ranging impacts on students, the education system, and even the nation's economy. California banned affirmative action for public school admissions via 1998's Proposition 209 a state of affairs that voters gave a new stamp of approval in 2020 when they defeated a ballot measure to overturn 209. So in a sense, California's public universities have been living in the future that all colleges will now operate in. We'll step back to discuss what the data says about California's experience and what the ruling could mean for students of all kinds. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Supreme Court banned affirmative action for college admissions yesterday in a 6-3 decision. Here to help us get a handle on what the decision actually held and what rationale the conservative members of the court put forth, we're joined by Rory Little, professor of constitutional law at the UC College of Law, San Francisco. Welcome, Rory. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Can you set us up with where the law was around affirmative action before this case? Because previous Supreme Court decisions had kind of landed us in an odd spot, no? Yeah, you know, it's been controversial for 50 years. But for since 1978, when the University of California system was upheld by the court, uh, you can use race as a factor uh, in college admissions. And that Precedent has been affirmed uh, a couple of times since then uh, in a case called Gruder in 2003. In the Fisher case in 2018 um, and in other cases, the idea that you could use race as a factor so long as you don't have a quota system. Mm -hmm. uh, And it's just one factor in a holistic uh, assessment, if you will, of the applicant uh, was viewed as constitutional. Uh, And yesterday, the court uh, seems to make very clear that that's not going to be permitted any longer, Uh, although they do, uh, frankly, lead us to some confusion at the end when the chief justice says nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected their life. Hmm. Uh, We'll have to move forward from that. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, let's let's actually let's step back. And let's say, what did the majority in this case hold? Like, what was the actual rationale uh, off the top for why they were overturning this, you know, reaffirmed and long-held precedent? 
Yeah, well, I have to say, for 30 years, uh, the lone black member of the court up until last year, Clarence Thomas, who was a beneficiary of affirmative action when he was admitted to Yale Law School, uh, has said that uh, the, the Constitution should be colorblind, uh, that any consideration of race, which results in uh, negatively affecting somebody's application, should be unconstitutional. Uh, he's been a lone dissenter on that view for many years. Uh, and then, as we all recall too well, President Trump got three appointees to the Supreme Court very quickly. And now there's a majority that has taken this view that the Constitution should be colorblind and that considering race uh, as, as a dispositive factor or as a stereotype factor, as opposed to an individualistic assessment, uh, violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Hmm. Were there any exceptions to that general line of reasoning in the in the holding? Well, the exception is this is this thing that is endorsed not just by the Chief Justice, but also actually by Justice Thomas, that you can consider other aspects of an applicant, such as economic disparity, uh, disability disparity, overcoming various disadvantages. Um, and you can consider that as a plus factor. Um, and if overcoming racism, for example, uh, is part of your application, then you can consider it. So the idea that you can't consider race, but you can now consider race when it's individualized uh, is the real confusion, if you will, or the lesson, the silver lining, if you want to see a silver lining in this. I mean, Justice Jackson, let's just be clear, the one, uh, the woman black justice is new, says this is a tragedy for us all. And Justice Sotomayor dissented, and she felt so strongly that she read from her dissent out loud for 15 minutes yesterday. Mm. Uh, again, she did that today with regard to gay rights. Uh, you haven't seen that kind of reading out loud of a dissent on the bench in many, many years. Mm. What was uh, Justice Sotomayor's dissent? What'd she say? Well, she wrote the longest opinion of any justice yesterday. I mean, she wrote 69 pages. Um, and she basically refutes much of the history that the court relies on. She takes Justice Thomas on head on and says, look, the Equal Protection Clause doesn't mention race. Uh, it was designed after the Civil War to try to bring some equality to millions of enslaved black people who had just been freed but were not equal. Um, and, and that the affirmative action movement, if you will, was historically designed immediately when they gave race-based relief to freedmen in 1866. Uh, it, was, it was designed to equalize disparities. And those disparities still persist in both Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson lay this out at great length in their uh, separate dissents. Yeah. You know, even if this opinion was expected because of the very conservative makeup of the court right now, was the particular way that the decision came down, do you think that was expected? Or do you think it's the legal rationale has turned out to be a bit of a surprise? Well, I mean, to be fair, I think people knew when the cert was granted, uh, review was granted in these cases, that the, the affirmative action plus factor holistic analysis was on the chopping block. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that uh, the oral arguments certainly suggested there was skepticism. Chief Justice Roberts has been skeptical uh, for years. Uh, 
you know, Justice Kennedy, who preserved the using race as a factor to achieve diversity, uh, is gone from the court now. He was not a liberal by any means. Um, so I think people saw this coming. Uh, and I don't think the rationale is surprising. I actually think what's surprising is that the court reserves the idea that you can still consider mm. race mm-hmm. if it is part of a disadvantaged individualistic application. This is going to the California schools in my school in particular have done this for many years. It's expensive to do every application individually, uh, especially when you're doing 50,000 applications like Harvard might be. Um, but this is what the court seems to be saying is that you're going to have to spend more money to achieve the same diversity that today we would like to see achieved uh, through a system that's a little bit simpler. I mean, did the majority address the ongoing issues of racism in our society? Did, like, did they acknowledge it in the holding? <laughs> well, yes. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say they closed their eyes to the reality. I mean, Justice Thomas's opinion, which is an astounding opinion, in my opinion, um, and he really uh, is almost insulting to Justice Jackson, the other African-American on the court, um, he says, look, I grew up in the segregated South. I'm not unconscious of racism. Um, but the, the way to overcome this is through individual achievement and not by discriminating on the basis of race. He sees the fem- affirmative action as discriminating on the basis of race. Uh, the majority is a little softer than that, but they certainly don't turn a blind eye to the history of slavery, to the history of Jim Crow segregation, to the very unhappy history of the Supreme Court trying to apply the Equal Protection Clause. Um, and 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 really, in, in, in what's most disturbing, there's so many things that are disturbing about this opinion. One of the most disturbing things is it's almost the back of a hand to the prior precedents written by conservative members of the court. Justice Powell wrote the 1978 decision. Mm-hmm. He's a conservative Southerner. Uh, Justice Kennedy, nobody thought saw him as a liberal. Um, he was a Republican appointee. Uh, and, and those precedents are, are, in a sense, tossed aside, or, or you might say, reinterpreted. That's what the Supreme Court says. We're not overruling them; we're just reinterpreting them. Hmm. Do these? Does this case? Does it endanger sort of affirmative action in all walks of life, or is it really limited to you know just these student admissions? You know, that is a really good question, Alexis. Um, I'll say two things about this opinion yesterday. One, there's a footnote that says, oh, by the way, it may be that military universities, places like West Point, can still use race as a factor because maybe the military has a special need for diversity. Uh, This is a little bit stunning, I think, to corporate America, who also filed a brief saying, look, we need to take race into account for diversifying our employee ranks and our executive ranks. Uh, the idea that diversity is still of value, uh, this, this is what uh, Justice Sotomayor says very powerfully at the end of her dissent. She says, look, diversity is still a fundamental value today in this society, and people are going to keep moving towards that regardless of what this court says in this case. So it's going to shake up college admissions. Uh, it's certainly going to make people wonder about affirmative action, consideration of race in other contexts. But I think Justice Sotomayor is right that nobody's going to give up a goal of diversity. Uh, we're going to just work hard to achieve some sort of vision of a diverse and, and fair society. Yeah. 
We're talking about yesterday's Supreme Court decision banning race-based admissions policies. Joined first here by Rory Little, professor of constitutional law at the UC School of Law in San Francisco. Little's a former Supreme Court clerk for Justice William Brennan. I wanted to add uh, another voice into our conversation. Teresa Watanabe is the higher education reporter at the Los Angeles Times. She's been covering this topic for a long time. Thanks for joining us, Teresa. You there, Teresa? Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Um, You know, I'll ask you uh, this question, Rory. What does this ruling mean for California's private colleges and universities? Well, uh, Harvard, which was one of the defendants in this case, is a private university. If you're a private university and you receive federal funds, you're subject to uh, the federal statutes, which prevent uh, prohibit discrimination. And the court yesterday says, look, this applies to the federal statutes as well as the Constitution. So private universities, public universities are going to be governed by this same standard, whatever this standard is. Um, If you are a school that doesn't ever take any federal money, but boy, it's hard to find a school like that today, especially with student loans. And of course, today the court struck down student loan forgiveness as well. So most most higher education institutions are going to be, and then you have to look at high schools. There are high schools that use race as a factor, but they receive federal funding. Um, There are lots of institutions, uh, you know, frankly, KQED and NPR probably receive federal funding. This gives, gives a hook for this sort of rationale to be expanded. I'm hopeful that it won't be, but it could be. We're talking about yesterday's Supreme Court decision banning race-based admissions policies, joined by Rory Little, professor of constitutional law at UC School of Law, San Francisco. We'd love to hear from you. We know this is a hot-button topic for a lot of people. What are your questions about this decision? We also know that California has banned race-based admissions in public universities for 25 years. Have you seen the impact? Has it affected you personally? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal Moore on the recent Supreme Court decision after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about yesterday's Supreme Court decision, which banned race-based admissions policies. Joined by Rory Little, constitutional law professor 
at UC School of Law in San Francisco. And I want to add Dania Matos, Vice Chancellor for Equity and Inclusion at UC Berkeley to our conversation. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So we know that California has been living in this reality uh, since 1998 when Proposition 209 passed banning um, race, race consciousness in admissions decisions. And we really want to look at sort of what the outcomes have been from that ban and how our public universities have fared in you know, maintaining diverse student bodies. Talk to me a little bit about the, the Cal experience. Um, what did we see in the immediate aftermath of that ban and how have things changed you know, over the intervening 25 years? Yes, one of the things we, we certainly have seen first that we have yet to reach our pre-proposition 209 levels on levels of diversity. As Rory shared, there's been a lot of human and financial resources uh, going into race neutral and different strategies and effectiveness to do that. But um, we certainly have a long way to go to even get to where we were before. And so it'll be really interesting to track you know, what happens post this decision as well. In terms of the, the campus experience of students, uh, we wrote in our amicus brief, right, that low percentages of underrepresented students really translates to small absolute numbers on our campus, and especially in the smaller settings that students interact. So you are going to see that students, especially at the most selective campuses of the UC, often find themselves being the only student of their race, ethnicity, in their class which impacts their sense of belonging, their sense of inclusion, and frankly, the impacts the overall student body, uh, which benefits greatly from diversity of experiences in the classroom. You know, did we see any recovery? I mean, I think in the immediate aftermath of Proposition 209, you know, we saw the number of brown and black students specifically on campus um, fall by about half, I believe, right? Has there been a recovery of either of those groups of students? And do we know which policy specifically changed that? So I will say that, you know, the gap between UC Berkeley in particular undergraduates and high school graduate representation for underrepresented student has been larger after Prop 209 took effect into 1998. Um, the gap between high school graduates and new enrollees um, increased dramatically. Now, those gaps have dropped in recent years, but as I shared, they have not returned to the pre-Prop 209 levels. And so there's no way really right now to pinpoint, was there any particular effort to do so, given that there's such a wide array of different varieties and strategies, and it's something we're still evaluating yeah. many years later. You know, one thing I've been very curious about is, I mean, we know that segregation, racial segregation, um, is still persistent in America, widespread, and that when we look at different measures of segregation within cities, if you look at zip code, you can see all kinds of um, racial disparities there. Has the university been able to sort of find the students that it's trying to recruit by, by using these race-neutral strategies, you know, using the location of where people are coming from, using income, um, has that been effective? I, I, I've heard from sociologists that there's a, a lot of questions about whether these race-neutral race strategies actually work. Absolutely. I think it's it's important to keep uh, tracking and speaking to those sociologists. One of the things I can say is that, you know, as, as stated into the opinion, while sort of race-conscious admissions were banned, 
the outreach of populations right across those different factors that you named wasn't. And as you know, we're in a society where um, race is still deeply embedded into zip codes, into socioeconomic status, and we'll see structural inequalities across the board. And so those efforts have been effective in us being able to do outreach. And no student is one singular identity. That is, race is a component of it, but there's so much more to their lived experience. So really sort of thinking about how do we think about increasing the number of students who receive the Pell Grant, uh, which is definitely something, um, an aspect of our campus, um, and that impacts sort of low-income students, if you will. Um, you know, another question for you. Did, what did we see in terms of the sort of completion rates, you know, maybe the six-year graduation rates or something like that between different students? Did things change at all, uh, you know, over this last you know couple decades? Could you repeat that, Alexis? Oh, yeah, sure. What did we see in terms of sort of graduation rates? You know, let's take, I think, the standard measure, six-year graduation rates, right? Did we see major changes in that over, you know, this last couple decades? Uh, like, I believe that Cal has seen, you know, an, an increase in graduation rates among brown and black students. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And I know that we have all this on our website to, to look at for the more detailed numbers. But uh, we have seen sort of an increase in the graduation rates, and that's really focused on increasing students' sense of belonging, right? I know earlier you asked about specifically Black and Latinx students, and we've done a lot of efforts um, to really think about how we center uh, different communities with that. That has really led to that sense of belonging, uh, both curricular and climate-wise. All right, let's um, bring in a caller here. Let's go to uh, Paul in San Francisco. Welcome. Yes, uh, I grew up in San Francisco. I've known a lot of Chinese Americans, and I heard about their history from their grandparents, how they were discriminated against uh, here in, in San Francisco. And wasn't the plaintiffs in this lawsuit uh, against uh, for the Supreme Court Chinese Americans? Is that discrimination against them when they can't get into a college because of their race? Uh, maybe we should have equal opportunity instead of just this whole idea of equity with hard numbers. Paul, thanks for that uh, perspective. Um, Roy, look, talk to me a little bit about that, how um, the court dealt with the race of the plaintiffs um, in this case. Well, it's certainly true that the Harvard case, at least, was stimulated by uh, Asian American students and parents who were concerned that, uh, in terms of numbers, uh, more uh, Asian Americans were being rejected than African Americans. Uh, that that giving uh, a credit for being uh, black uh, and not giving a credit for being Asian is a discrimination, uh, and that is the theory that the majority uh, adopted yesterday. Um, it's a little bit uh, misleading in the sense that um, huge numbers of students of all kinds are rejected every year by Harvard. I mean, their acceptance rate is unbelievably low, um, that there are large numbers of Asian Americans uh, at Harvard, just as there are at uh, UC Hastings. I still call our school Hastings. Uh, we, you know, we have a very large group um, to, to sort of say that if anybody is rejected, it's it's been a discrimination against them. Every race could make that argument because they haven't gotten a bump for something. Um, so it's true that Chinese Americans were, were the victims of great 
Asian Americans, great uh, prejudice and discrimination in this country, the Korematsu case and, and the internment of Japanese American citizens in World War II. And the court recognizes that, or at least Justice Thomas does. Uh, and But he goes on to say that doesn't mean we should be doing anything in favor of those groups today uh, to make up for sins of the past. It's all about individual achievement in his mind. Uh, it's a little confusing to figure out how that worldview persists in the face of uh, sustained racial disparities in, in many areas. Yeah. Um one uh, legal point from a listener, uh, Linda. Linda writes in to say, I don't understand how they can regulate private colleges. UC, okay, but Stanford? Can you just explain a little bit how that, why that is? Well, the, the idea is if your institution receives any kind of money from the federal government, then federal laws apply. And so the uh, various anti-discrimination laws that are uh, that say basically anyone receiving federal funds has to comply with our non-discrimination laws, uh, those reach into virtually every educational institution in the country because somewhere you're taking federal money. You may be taking it for student loans. You may be taking it for a construction project. You may be taking it for a research uh, project in, in one of your labs. Uh, and the minute federal funds are sort of in the institution, uh, then the theory is that the law can reach all aspects of that institution, and that theory has been upheld for, for many, many years. Uh, so that's how Stanford – Stanford's going to have to comply with this, just like uh, UC Berkeley. I want to add another voice into our conversation here about yesterday's Supreme Court decision banning race-based admissions. Teresa Watanabe is the higher education reporter at the Los Angeles Times. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Hey, how are you? So – Prop 209, you know, as we've been talking about, banned using race and admissions in 1998. We've heard a little bit about Cal's experience from Dania Matos. What about the other um, uh, campuses in the UC and Cal State systems? Like, were they able to maintain the kind of demographics that they had built in the pre-1998 era? Yeah, well, Proposition 209 was actually approved in 1996, but 1998 was the first admission year that was affected. So if you look at the data from back then, you will see that at the most competitive campuses, UCLA and Berkeley, the share and number of Black and Latino students plunged by about half. Um, Asian Americans didn't really change. It stayed, I'm talking about the first year admits, mm -hmm. stayed about 35% both in 95 and in 98. Um, and it took the UC system many, many, many years to recover. Uh, interestingly enough, however, uh, the diversity at the other campuses in the UC system increased. Uh, and I think there is a UC Berkeley researcher, Zach Gleamer, who has shown that what happened was that uh, Black and Latino students in particular, quote, cascaded down to other campuses when they were not able to get into Berkeley and UCLA. Um, the Cal State system, however, didn't really show any impact. Cal State is uh, fully diverse in terms of the reflecting the state population, and it was diverse back in 96, and it is diverse as well today. Yeah. What about the private um, universities? You know, we talked a little bit with uh, Rory about what they're what they're facing here. What have you heard in your reporting about how they've been sort of preparing for um, for this decision? 
Well, everyone is looking at the UC system because UC system has laid out a 25-year roadmap for how to diversify without using race considerations and admissions. And one thing I do want to point out really quickly is that very few institutions actually have used affirmative action. It really is uh, only the most selective institutions. I think there's data out there that show only 200 institutions of, you know, uh, 2,000 uh, four-year universities actually uh, are selective enough to have to use race to apportion seats. And among them, a lot of them are now saying that they are going to do what UC has been doing for years, which is much more aggressive, targeted recruitment, um, a lot more emphasis on developing K-12 pipeline programs to help um, encourage uh, students to take the classes, the rigorous classes, um, uh, and all of that to create competitive college applications and um, try to uh, beef up financial aid. Uh, because if you go to using things like zip code, as you were discussing earlier, mm-hmm. uh, and you're going to probably enroll more low-income students who will need more financial support. Let's bring in uh, another caller. Let's go to um, Alexis in Berkeley. Welcome, Alexis. Hi, good morning. Hey, talk, talk to me about your story. Yeah, so I'm currently, I just graduated from UC Berkeley. I was a transfer student, so I did go to community college. I'm from San Jose, um, and I really participated in a lot of student-led programs to help me get into Berkeley and continue my higher education journey. I worked at Bridges Multicultural Resource Center, the same center that provided me mentorship and college application support when I was a community college student. And students are still doing this work, even despite kind of the affirmative action result that came out yesterday. We've been doing this work since 1996 and even before then. Um, And we have a really big history with the university and with Prop 209. Um, But yeah. Alexis, you know, both like in your kind of qualitative experience or in the work that you've done with, with other students, what aspects did you find to be really significant about your experience or the kind of resources that you got at school that helped you graduate, that helped you get across the finish line? Yeah, so through Bridges Multicultural Resource Center, we are a recruitment and retention center. So the resources, one of them being as a community college student, I was a part of a program that recruited me and supported me in my application. But once I was at Cal, retention really looked like healthcare products. It looked like support and tutoring. It looked like building a community, a cross-cultural community um, at Cal. We are comprised of seven different ethnic cultural recruitment and retention centers. So we really pride ourselves off being a coalition of community that cares for each other and is providing support. So we also even have um, a therapist as our mental health advisor. Um, We have academic advising from our advisors that kind of serve as um, support for the work that we do, but they really are like our femtors and mentors in this program. They're kind of leading us in trying to navigate higher education. So it's a lot of community care, um, as well as literal resources, like getting stipends or getting resources for health or academic supplies and things like that. Yeah. 
Hey, Alexis, thank you so much for uh, providing us with that perspective, you know, on the ground uh, among students there at, at Berkeley. Thank you so much. You know, um, Dania, I just wanted to ask you, you know, as you listen to Alexis talk about the experience that she had with, you know, Bridges Multicultural Resource Center and um, the other components of the experience that kind of created uh, a, a workable um, college life for her. What does your research into what's working at the campus say? Um, is it really the, the set of things that she was talking about? Or are there other things we need to make sure we mention? Yeah, first of all, so happy to hear one of our alumna go bears on there, Alexis. But um, absolutely, I think that what Alexis talked about both with Bridges and ensuring oftentimes when we think about communities, it's really important to um, listen from where they are and have them involved and invested in sort of creating some of those spaces and places. Bridges being an example of it. Um, I have a division that leads sort of programs like our Hope Scholars, which is our for our child welfare and system impacted students that has very similar academic advising, uh, sort of mental health support, financial, all the different aspects. You have to remember, particularly public institutions, we don't exist in isolation or in a vacuum. And so the things about campus climate um, and creating students' sense of belonging and thriving and graduation and persistence really also has to address the complex interconnected social political web um, that impacts you know, our campuses from the local, state, national level. Mm -hmm. So things like this decision and really ensuring that uh, we are uh, speaking to that interconnectedness, not only of the identity of our students, but what's happening in the world as well. Yeah. We're getting in a um, bunch of comments from uh, listeners who'd like to talk about this. Rita writes and say, how ironic that as the rest of the country is talking about reparations for people who have been denied so many opportunities, the Supreme Court decided to reject affirmative action, one thing that has the potential to offer education to minority individuals. Another listener writes in, this ruling is a real slap in the face. My high school sophomore is already having to deal with the uber-competitive parents and students in our suburban school district, in which kids have been working day and night to achieve their 4.7 GPA since they were in kindergarten. These parents and their kids and their super-high GPAs are going to be every extreme, going to every extreme to be ahead. Parents of kids who have potential but don't have the desire or financial means to push their kids to the brink and have chosen to stay at grade level barely stand a chance to be admitted to a UC school. We're talking about yesterday's Supreme Court decision banning race-based admissions. Joined by Dania Matos, uh, Vice Chancellor for Equity and Inclusion at UC Berkeley, Teresa Watanabe, higher education reporter at the LA Times, and Rory Little, Con Professor of Constitutional Law at UC School of Law in San Francisco. We'll get to more of your calls and comments when we come back from the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about yesterday's Supreme Court decision banning race-based admissions policies. Joined by Rory Little, professor of constitutional law, UC School of Law in San Francisco. Teresa Watsonabe, higher education reporter at the LA Times. And Dania Matos, vice chancellor for equity and inclusion at UC Berkeley. Let's bring in um, Tran in Berkeley. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Hi, my name is Tran. I'm currently um, at UC Berkeley. I'm a Vietnamese American first generation college student studying legal studies. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Can you um talk to us a little bit about you know your educational journey? Yeah, of course. Um, well, I immigrated from the U.S. from Vietnam when I was nine years old, um, and at the time, I felt like I couldn't really grasp the concept of co- college because assimilation was my priority. And um, I didn't have anyone in my family who successfully completed high school or attended a four-year university in college. Um, So I think they knew that I had to work a lot harder to catch up and go to college for the upward mobility, but didn't exactly know the process or like steps Mm -hmm. to get there. Um, So my educational journey was a lot of just learning along the way. Yeah. I mean... When you were getting ready to apply for colleges, like, did you have a sense that your race would have an impact on your college admissions chances? I was very aware. I went to a predominantly Latina and Asian suburban high school. So a lot of my white educators would tell me, well, your story isn't unique enough because there's so many students already like you. Uh, when I was applying to UC, they told me to not check the boxes because the Asian American students um, in, in their idea are a monolith. And they think that I shouldn't do that because then I would destroy my chances of getting into UC campuses. Well, how do you feel about this decision? I honestly am struggling a lot with kind of like the rhetoric that puts Asian Americans as the pawns in this decision. Um, We are being used as racial scapegoats for right-wing conservative agenda, and it's a very divisive tactic, um, even though an overwhelming percentage of Asian Americans support affirmative action. And I strongly feel that students now more than ever have to be their biggest self-advocates and not discredit how their race contribute to their lived experiences and stories before they get in. Because my story is so much tied to my race and ethnicity. Um, and we now have to make that dot more than ever because college admission counselors can't do that for us. Hey, Trent, thank you so much for uh, calling and sharing, sharing your story with us and how you've, how you've felt about and are, are dealing with this, um, this decision from the, from the court. I wanted to add another uh, voice to our conversation here. We've got Michelle Siqueiros, um, president of the Campaign for College Opportunity, which is a nonprofit that seeks to help provide an opportunity to go to college for every uh, eligible student in the state. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me. So I just want to ask you, what do you think of this opinion, the Supreme Court opinion? Well, I think it's uh, profoundly devastating nationally. We know what the impact was in California when affirmative action was banned. And I think it is hard to imagine that we won't see incredible 
uh, exclusion of Black, Latinx, Asian American, uh, Alaska Natives, Indigenous folks from the most selective institutions. And I would say that students, uh, all, all Americans deserve an opportunity to access every single institution. And until we ban the other kinds of preferences like legacy admissions, uh, overuse and misuse of standardized testing, truly expand financial aid for low-income students, then we are really not providing this idea of, of, uh, of equity and, and you know, colorblindness in higher education is, is, is just insane to me based on uh, the Supreme Court's, you know, twisted rationale. Mm -hmm. So we know, you know, Prop 209, as Teresa mentioned, passed 96, went into effect in 98. It's been you know, 25 years that we've been seeing this in the UC system. I mean, what has your particular organization with your mission learned about this non-affirmative action landscape and the way to navigate it? Yeah, we've learned that, you know, the ban actually had an incredible chilling effect and it was uh, over-interpreted. Uh, not only, you know, did some campuses... Uh, look at banning, you know, using race and admissions, but they stopped doing the kinds of outreach recruitment uh, programming that some on campuses either didn't want to do that would have uh, ensured greater access for Black and Latinx students, um, but felt that Prop 209 somehow disallowed it. I think it took about 10 to 15 years for the University of California to really think more holistically about its admissions process. And that's why we have comprehensive review. And I think that's a lesson for the nation from California and our experience um, and, and started to really think about partnering and recruiting um, students more intentionally. Uh, you know, our students attend highly segregated schools with highly inequitable access and opportunity to college prep courses. The UC, you know, was a trailblazer in providing access to college prep courses online for students that didn't have those offered at their schools. So I think, uh, you know, the University of California provides a lesson in what can be done to mitigate the effects of this decision nationally. Um, but obviously, there has to be the, the both the political will and the leadership from college leaders to make that a reality. Let's go back to the phones here. Um, Sam in Saratoga. Welcome. Hi there. I hope you can hear me. Hello? Can you hear yeah, me? Yeah, I can hear you, Sam. Go ahead. All right. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, okay. So, I uh, I got it, applied to law school during the height of the affirmative action program in 1990. I scored top 4% in colors, not dark. Okay. Didn't get any affirmative action. We only had, I couldn't get into a top tier school. We had three kids in our school, entering class, who were uh, African American. Every single one flunked out. Okay. Um, so I, I believe that metrics should be used and the color of your skin should not be one of them. Uh, as it happens, uh, I come from a repressed minority. I'm from the Middle East. I'm a refugee. I was raised um, writing right to left. So I had a lot of disadvantages. I was able to push through. Um, I think that this, where you bring in people who are otherwise unqualified and get them in based on the color of the skin, you are not doing them a service. You're not doing the profession a service. You're not doing the general public a service. I, I don't think it's a smart idea to do this. I think it, you should use objective criteria and move forward with that. That's my opinion. Yeah, can you hear Sam, me? Yeah, sure can, Sam. Um, thanks for uh, for sharing your opinion there. I mean, 
One of the interesting things uh, when this Proposition 209 um, came up for to be overturned by um, a ballot measure in 2020, uh, you know, 57 percent, I think, of Californians um, voted not to overturn Proposition 209, agreeing uh, with Sam, at least in some uh, in some sense. I'm curious what you think, um, Rory Little, you know, people who just say this is an issue of kind of basic fairness. We should just use kind of quantitative uh, measures that just say, you know, these are the people who get in. These are the people who shouldn't and that we shouldn't use um, race uh, or ethnicity as a, as a factor in admissions. Yeah, let me just say, I'm sorry, that 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 idea that completely unqualified people are somehow admitted through affirmative action is just crazy and wrong. Uh, you know, when race is given as a plus factor, we are admitting people who are every bit as qualified as anybody else who we admit. Um, if they get us, uh, somebody who says, look, I overcame a racist incident in my past or something, uh, that's a factor that we might consider. But we admit only qualified people to my law school. And and uh, I'll match our uh uh, you know, our our diverse student body, any number of them from any racial background against anybody else in the country. Um, the idea that unqualified people somehow get admitted because they're black, that just doesn't happen. So that's just false. Let me just say uh, your, your caller, Tran, uh, would likely be admitted without regard to race uh, because she has a compelling individual story. Uh, and Sam, his story seems very compelling. He would be admitted through our program called LEOP at Hastings, where we do individualistic consideration. Um, the Supreme Court uh, and the public seem to misunderstand what affirmative action means. It's not discriminating based on race s such that unqualified people get ahead. It's, it's, it's selecting from an already highly qualified group of people exactly who gets in where. Uh, and, you know, this idea that the most selective UC campuses are the ones that were hurt by Prop 209. That just shows the disparity of resources. Yeah, Cal State uh, doesn't get affected by it, but the top universities do. Well, the top universities are the ones producing the business jobs and the leaders and things like that. It's access to those selective elite institutions that needs to be diversified. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I'm sorry, I get a little emotional about the yeah. idea that unqualified people are somehow being admitted through these programs. It's just not true. Another listener writes in to say, you know, what if all colleges added a short essay to the application in addition to whatever other essays required? No more than 250 words that ask, what about your heritage or family background has influenced how you want to pursue a college education and your educational values overall? Would something like that allow colleges to meld a class of various backgrounds and values in a way that doesn't run afoul of the court's current decision? And um, maybe, Rory, you can give us the answer on the narrow legal question. And then, Dania Matos, maybe we'll come to you after that for, you know, how, how do you see uh, something like this working? Well, we're going to learn the answer to that question uh, in the wake of this decision. I mean, again, the court says quite clearly nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected their life. Um, and this is what Hastings has been doing for 50 years in their LEOP program, but this is what um, universities are going to have to now do, um, which has become more individualized, and that's exactly the way it should be anyway, if you can do it. Um, and and uh, I don't think this opinion says you can't do what this person has just suggested. Yeah. 
Danny, how do you think that might work? I completely agree. And having read um, applications myself and even at UC Berkeley, we are interested in who students are and what they've accomplished. And you'll see that come through soon, through many, many, many applications. And so having them be able to communicate the ways they want to engage and the experiences that would have made them ready to engage here on campus is such a positive attribute here. And if they have, if it includes experience around their identity, then they should absolutely include it, uh, just not to know that it's not a requirement, right? But it often comes through um, in our holistic approach. Yeah. You know, another listener writes in to say, you know, I would hope that this decision causes colleges to have to look more holistically at each candidate. If a student does have racial adversity, they can mention it in their essay. That way, a variety of legitimate types of adversity can be considered along with merit. Should a blue-eyed, wealthy Argentinian immigrant kid who's technically Latino get a boost over a poor Hmong refugee kid who's technically Asian? We need to look at each case. Um, I want to go to you, Michelle Chiqueros, uh, president of the Campaign for College Opportunity how are you encouraging students to remain in the pipeline? You know, we've heard about this, the chilling effect that came from, you know, Proposition 209. But of course, there were a lot of other things going on in California at that time. Do you anticipate that there will be a similar kind of effect from the Supreme Court decision? And if so, like, how do you beat that back? Well, I certainly hope not. But, um, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I think we're all going to be waiting to see. You know, my hope is that, you know, counselors continue to do the work to encourage students that uh, parents understand uh, the importance of supporting uh, their students' college dreams. Um, you know, we've heard from leaders of independent colleges and universities that they are committed to doing more in terms of recruitment and expanding financial aid. I think all of those things need to happen. You know, I think one of the things, you know, we also have to remember is that we do have a responsibility as a state, um, as a nation to invest more in higher education. You know, much of this conversation centers around the fact that, that there's a sense that the pie is limited you know, the pie can be more expansive if we choose to expand the number of seats available for students at the University of California in our own state. Um, and again, if we attack some of the other uh, ways that students are privileged be just because they're wealthy or just because their grandfather went to Harvard. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in uh, Edna in Oakland. Welcome, Edna. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I can, Edna. Go ahead. Okay, great. Um, so I've been kind of following this conversation, and I think a lot of the comments I've heard are misrepresentative of what affirmative action was trying to address and the larger racial disparities and hierarchy that already existed in the United States. And I think that it's unfair for people to say that um, Black people or African Americans are just getting into colleges, select schools, because of race as the, like, sole criteria. I think that we're qualified. I'm African American, but also there's a long legacy of the in the United States of denying African Americans access to higher education. That was why HBCUs were created um, in large part, anyways. And I think that people coming to the country and saying that they overcame certain things are kind of denying or not really seeing how long the legacy of discrimination in the United States has been and how it's been targeted and systemically focused on keeping black. African American people out of higher education and out of the larger society and gaining a greater portion of power. 
Um, so that's just kind of what I want to say. I'm kind of disturbed by what people are saying. <laughs> so. Well, I think I think Rory Little. Uh, I just want to give you a, a chance. Uh, Rory Little very much agrees with you. I think about this particular topic, um, and I wanted to um, get your sense, Rory, of the, the on the legal side of this. I mean, one of the issues is right. It was basically explicitly outlawed to be able to say that affirmative action was being used to address racial hierarchy and past discrimination. Right. Thank you, Edna, for that. Comment. Yeah, you know, Edna's exactly right, and her uh, her view has been expressed very uh, wonderfully by Justice Sotomayor's dissent. Uh, and Justice Sotomayor says at the end, you know, despite uh, this court's efforts to impede progress, uh, the arc of the moral universe will bend toward racial justice. Uh, she basically says, I'm not going to spend so much time criticizing the majority as I am going to explain why this is going to be a positive step in the future, despite the court. Um, yeah, the court has slowly narrowed what counts as a compelling state interest, and they've eliminated the idea that this long legacy of disparity and exclusion should be a compelling state interest, uh, and, and that, that that's just a shame of the last 50 years. Um, and so they're on a very narrow ground to begin with, in this opinion. Edna's right. There's a whole history here that the court, in some sense, is unconscious of. Yeah, or refuses to recognize. We're talking about yesterday's Supreme Court decision banning race-based admissions policies. We've been talking with Rory Little, professor of constitutional law at UC School of Law in San Francisco, uh, Little's former Supreme Court clerk for Justice William Brennan. Thank you so much for joining us, Rory. Thank you so much. We've also been talking with Teresa Watanabe, higher education reporter with the Los Angeles Times. Thank you so much for joining us, Teresa. Thank you. Danny Matos, Vice Chancellor for Equity and Inclusion at UC Berkeley, also joined us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Michelle Siqueiros, President of the Campaign for College Opportunity. That's a nonprofit that seeks to help provide an opportunity to go to college for every eligible student in the state. Thank you, Michelle. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you to all of our callers and commenters for your perspectives. The 9 o'clock hour forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Juan, Dan Zoll, and Juan Carlos Lara. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Francesca Fendi is our digital community producer. Judy Campbell is lead producer. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tovin Linty, And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of forum with guest host Leslie McClurg. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.